Well, turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we'll consider verses 40 through 52. Some of your Bibles may start this section in verse 41. It should more properly be started in verse 40, so that's where we'll start. Luke 2, 40 through 52, and we'll be there in just a few minutes. While you're finding Luke 2, we're reminded in Hebrews 4, 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 makes it very clear that although Jesus is God, he he, He faced difficulties in the same way that we do, except He never once succumbed to temptation. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. This is a Greek word which means to suffer alongside, meaning the sympathy of Christ isn't just that He has divine knowledge on the topic of suffering, but that He has suffered. What does this mean? Well, it means that Christ the man had to live a spiritual life just like we do. We have to live a spiritual life in order to properly navigate that suffering in a God-pleasing manner. And so this afternoon, I'd like to talk to you about two aspects of Christ's spiritual life as a man. I want to talk to you, first of all, about Scripture in the spiritual life of Christ, and then secondly, prayer in the spiritual life of Christ And I'm hopeful, and I've prayed that this study will be encouraging and inspirational to you. It has been to me in my own preparation for this message. So let's jump right in. Scripture in the spiritual life of Christ. Now, I'm not coming at this from the angle of Christ's use of Scripture in the ministry, although it's stunning and perfect. That's a different topic. Neither am I coming at this from the angle of Christ's view of Scripture, although that's going to be very clear. Instead, I want to get more personal. What was the role of Scripture in his life as a man? And to look at this, we go to really one of the most intriguing texts about the life of Christ. It's the only account we have in all of Scripture about the childhood of Christ. And this account is focused on the Scriptures. So let's follow along together. Luke 2, beginning in verse 40. Now the child continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents would go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after finishing the days of the feast, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know. But supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey and they began searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And it happened that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother was treasuring all these things in her heart. 
And Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, Jesus' response to Mary here shows us several important background details to the main thrust of this text. That First of all, neither Mary nor Joseph fully understood the answer that Jesus gave. Verse 50 is very clear. They didn't understand. We also see that Jesus understood at the age of 12 that his, his true father was not his legal human father, Joseph, but his heavenly father, God the Father, who sent him into the world and had given him a very specific mission. And we see that Jesus knew who he was and why he was on earth. By this time, he had that knowledge, that understanding. But the clear focus of this text is the, the spiritual progress of Jesus, the boy, soon to legally be a man. We know this is the focus because the story begins and ends with this. This is why it needs to start with verse 40, not 41. Now the child continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Verse 52, and Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Those are the, those are the bookends. It tells us what the story is about. Verse 40 includes the physical growth of Jesus, but this just serves as proof that the whole verse, as well as verse 52, is also showing spiritual growth and wisdom. And the outworking of this remarkable conversation with the experts in, in Scripture is, is what we see as a result of his growing in wisdom. He'd been at the temple for days, interacting with the teachers of the law, and you notice that he was doing three things. He was listening, he was asking questions, and he was answering questions. And the astonishment of the teachers, as well as the fact that they did this mega marathon of theological and scriptural discussion, it shows us that it became very apparent to these experts in the law that, that Jesus was no slouch in the scriptures, and in fact, he was keeping step with them. This is shocking considering that the greatest Bible teachers in Israel were not likely to ask a child directions, much less theological questions. But they're asking this child and they're interacting with him. And so the burning question for us to ask is, why was Jesus able to have this extended discussion in which he listened, asked questions, and answered questions? And I think our general impulse, our, our general default is to attribute the knowledgeable answers and questions to the deity of Christ. That he is, after all, God incarnate and therefore his wisdom originates with the fact that he's God. And of course, then he's able to surprise and shock the leading Bible experts in Israel. That's the default view we tend to have. But there has to be more to this than simply defaulting to the deity of Christ. The bookends of verse 40 and verse 52 both indicate learning and growth in wisdom, not as a function or outworking of the divine nature of Christ, but it must be a function and outworking of the human growth, the human learning, the human nature of Christ. And you may have noticed here that Luke makes certain that the reader understands that Jesus is learning as a human being in the same way his body is growing. He makes that comparison. He's increasing in wisdom and in stature. Now, obviously, his divine nature cannot learn or grow. He's infinitely knowledgeable, infinitely wise. That is, he's omniscient and omnisapient. So the only option left to us is that Jesus grew in wisdom in his human nature. And that's why verses 40 and 52, the bookends which define the thrust of this story, are so very important. 
Verse 40 says that Jesus was being filled with wisdom. This is a passive verb that means that others were contributing to his being filled with wisdom. God would be at the top of that list. We would add the scriptures themselves, his parents, these teachers of the law, since Jesus was asking them questions. And then verse 52 says he was advancing in wisdom. This is a different type of verb. This is an imperfect active verb. It it indicates a progression and a repetition that he was aggressively going after himself. And so he's being filled with wisdom with the help of others and he's actively pursuing filling himself with wisdom. And so he told his parents that he needed to be in his father's house. This is the, the, the biggest and the top priority for him. Verse 40 says that this was the grace of God upon him. We're not told precisely what that means, but the context is the spiritual development of Jesus, that God was involved favorably and positively in Jesus' continued learning. If we had time, we would look at Isaiah 11, verse 2, which indicates that the Holy Spirit was the source of wisdom for Jesus as a man. And so if the wondrous knowledge of of the word was solely due to the deity of Christ, then scripture certainly wouldn't mention the help of the Father and wouldn't mention the help of the Spirit. That must be help for Jesus the man. So both verse 40 and 52 clearly contain learning language, the language of increase of knowledge of a human being. Well, now that opens another can of worms Okay, if this is human learning and human growth and human knowledge, how in the world at the age of 12 was he already amazing the leaders, the the teachers of the law? How is he doing that? Well, I have two answers to that question, which traditionally has been answered with the default answer. Well, Jesus is God, so of course he knew all those things. But God never learns. God can't increase in knowledge But this is learning language, both from others and from his own efforts. So how do we answer that question? Let me give you two answers. And both of them are found in Psalms. Turn with me to Psalm 1 for answer number one. Psalm 1, how is it that he was able to have this amazing knowledge even by the age of 12? Psalm 1 heads up the Psalter by giving us the contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. Verse 1 begins, How blessed is the man! And verse 4 begins, The wicked are not so. This clear distinction and juxtaposition between the righteous man and the unrighteous man. Look at the description of the righteous man. Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Jesus was a sinless boy who never once took counsel with, never once considered the view of, never once was tempted to believe the thoughts of the the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers. The Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but that's because all other children are sinners. Jesus never did, said, or thought a foolish thing once. He never listened to the wrong crowd one time ever. Unlike you and me, We're continually having to sift through the nonsense of the world, right? In order to try to attempt to not have the sinful world dictate our thinking and our lives. But Jesus never once considered the viewpoint of the wicked, except to denounce it. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. 
Jesus, the perfect boy, he delighted in the word of God. It's a word that means to take joy in it, to revel in it. And he did so impeccably without sin. He meditated on the word of God. This is a word that means to speak it to yourself, literally murmuring the word of God to yourself. And he did so flawlessly and absolutely and continually. And what's the promised result? Verse 3, And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So we can rightly assume then that if a man perfectly never once considered the ways of sinners and perfectly delights in the law of the Lord and perfectly meditates upon it day and night, then he will perfectly be like the tree planted by streams of waters and all that he does will prosper. What does that mean? It's a biblical phrase. It means he will always do God's will every time. See, Luke 2 says that Jesus increased in wisdom. How was it that at the age of 12, he was already amazing the teachers of the law? Jesus was a perfect boy, perfect man, and therefore he was the perfect prototype of the Psalm 1, 1 through 3 man. A perfect hunger for the word, never ever hindered by sin. Let me give you a second answer also found in Psalms. Turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a prayer with requests and declarations of truth all centered around the word of God all 176 verses contain some reference to God's word to the scriptures and I'll just give you a small sampling here we could stay here all day obviously Psalm 119 verse 1 how blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of Yahweh The way of Jesus was in actuality blameless because he walked in the law of Yahweh and therefore Jesus was perfectly blessed. Verse 10, with all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. In Jesus, this prayer is perfectly answered. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus, this prayer is perfectly answered. Verse 34, Cause me to understand that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. This is perfectly answered in Christ. Skip a a bit ahead to verse 97. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. This is perfectly true of Christ that he literally meditated on Scripture every single moment he could. Verse 98. For your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are... Mine forever. This was worked out perfectly. Jesus always in his ministry showed himself wiser than his enemies. He never one time was stumped by a theological problem or a challenge presented to him. Not one time. How about verses 99 and 100? For I have more insight than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I perceive more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. At 12, Jesus is fulfilling this. In verse 115, depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Don't you hear the echo of Jesus thwarting Satan by telling him, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Jesus Christ, the boy, Jesus Christ, the man, every prayer for being saturated in God's word is perfectly answered. 
And every declaration of the impactful power of the word of God in the man is fulfilled perfectly in him. Jesus, the boy and the young man learned the word of God. He learned it as a human being. Now think about the implications of this. If all the prayers of Psalm 119 are fulfilled perfectly in Christ as a learner, then think about this. There was a day when Jesus read or heard for the umpteenth time Isaiah 61. And he knew this was speaking of him. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and free them to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. There was a day when Jesus read Deuteronomy for the umpteenth time, the hundredth time, the five hundredth time. And he so perfectly grasped and so perfectly meditated on this word that he would later use Deuteronomy to ward off the greatest temptation in the history of mankind by Satan. There was a day when Jesus read Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And verse 18, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And he knew this would be fulfilled in him at the cross. And because he knew Psalm 22 was him, his heart's cry to God was on the cross from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all the learning of Christ as a man came into play when he spontaneously did this with two men on the road to Emmaus. Luke records in Luke 24, 27, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And as a 12-year-old, don't you wonder what sorts of questions Jesus was asking the teachers of the law? And there, there's no hint of confrontation in Luke 2. That would come later. Now that we see that Jesus the boy was learning the word of God, there's no grounds to assume that Jesus wasn't learning from these master teachers of the law himself. But those of you who teach, you know that the questions a student asks very often reveals the depth of his thinking. And that was partly what was amazing, the teachers of the law. And Jesus learned this well. He learned to ask questions. Think about the questions he asked during his ministry. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? You want to say, don't fall for it. They said to him, the son of David. They fell for it. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? He just explained the eternal existence of the Son of God, and he stumped them with a question. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. By the way, Jesus learned well how to answer questions with zinger questions. Matthew 15 records that some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Zing! 
Matthew 21, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. Zing again. On another occasion, some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you never read what what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone and gave it to his companions. Zing! How early did he learn this? How about the one from our text in Luke 2? When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Respectful, zing. (laughs) Jesus never once used the phrase I've used countless times as a pastor. I don't know, I'll have to get back to you. He was already a master of the scriptures at age 12 and God his father gave him 18 more years beyond that in preparation for his ministry. This has some important applications from you and from me I think it's imperative that we see that if we don't just default to the standard answer, well, Jesus knew the scriptures because he's God, that now that gives us hope that to at least to a certain degree, we can follow in his footsteps. Let me give you two clear implications of these truths that we've seen in Christ. The first implication is that sin is a barrier to learning the word of God. Sin is a barrier to learning the word of God. Jesus didn't have this barrier But you can function this way as well. What do I mean by this? You can decide that you will never come to the Word of God, reading the Word, studying the Word, hearing the preached Word. You never come to the Word of God without a pure and confessed heart of humility. That you are right before God, that you have confessed sin, that you have had your spiritual feet washed, John 13 as it were. The heart that's right before God is then open to the wealth of the riches of the Word. You know, I've noticed this as a pastor then when somebody decides that they're mad at the church or mad at the elders or mad at me, that they stop learning. They stop growing because you can't, you can't be in the midst of sin and keep learning in the word of God. You can't separate sanctification and growth in the word. Those two go together. Growth in the word fuels sanctification, but active rebellion stunts your growth in the word. They're interdependent. And it's a, it's a vicious cycle that if you are continuing in sin and in rebellion, you, your time in the Word becomes fruitless. And if your time in the Word becomes fruitless, you are much more likely to continue in sin and rebellion. But the opposite cycle is true as well, that if you come in humility and in confess sin, your time in the Word will be fruitful, which brings you more sanctification, which makes the Word more fruitful. There's a second implication. Learning the word of God is a priority. It is a priority. Jesus made it more important than even being with his family. He made it more important than getting back to Nazareth on time. Time spent in discussion of the word of God was time well spent for him. Three days of theological discussion. Learning, asking questions. And if I could just humbly suggest to you that if you keep saying, well, I'll get better about reading my Bible someday or 
I'll listen to the preaching in the assembled church more than 60 to 70% of the Sundays of the year someday. Or I'll start digging a little more deeply into God's word someday. I've sat with enough dying believers to hear them say, oh, I regret that I kept saying someday and now I'm done. Instead, let Christ be the standard for what true hunger for the word is. And we try to preach a lot of detail here, and I've, I've heard this said out loud on occasion. If you say, well, I've been learning the Bible my whole life. I, I feel like I've really gotten kind of stocked up here, and, and I don't feel the need to be so eager anymore. Well, consider this. The Bible calls Jesus the eternal Word of God. The Bible calls itself the Word of Christ. And yet Jesus lowered himself as a boy and as a man, listen carefully, to learn the Word which he authored. If he learns the word which he wrote, how much more ought we to make that a priority? That scripture in the spiritual life of Christ. What about prayer in the spiritual life of Christ? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. And in Hebrews 5, we're going to consider verses 7 through 9. The prayer life of Christ stands out as a clear and amazing example of his spiritual life. But to get to the prayer part, we really need to consider the overall idea of his spiritual growth, his spiritual maturing. And so we'll get to the prayer part through that avenue. Again, like I mentioned earlier, generally many of us default to viewing Jesus' spiritual life through the lens of his divine nature. That since Jesus is God, then of course his spiritual life is vibrant and and perfect. There's no growth or maturing necessary or, or possible. Now, from one angle, that's true. Jesus is sinless, and so he always perfectly carried out his Father's will. He always had the divine approval of God the Father. He always had glorious, unbroken communion and fellowship with the Father. John fifteen ten. I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. But what about the human nature of Christ? We've already seen from Luke 2 that Jesus was being filled with wisdom, a passive verb meaning others were contributing to his being filled with wisdom, and he was advancing in wisdom, the imperfect verb indicating repeated purposeful actions he was taking to advance in wisdom. These two ideas of the sinless perfection of Jesus and his clear growth and advancement spiritually, they're not mutually exclusive. They don't contradict each other. It's precisely because Jesus was sinless and always carried out his Father's will. His spiritual growth as a boy and as a man was dynamic and fast-growing and limitless. You remember when you first became a believer and you read the Bible and it's just like exploding in your brain all the time? That was Jesus' experience all the time. No hindrances, no distractions, no wayfaring moments to ever one time slow his spiritual growth. And Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 is very helpful for us to understand the spiritual life of Christ the boy and the man. Hebrews 7, follow along with me. I'm sorry, Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 7. He, in the days of his flesh, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now, if 
you as a Christian haven't spent a lot of time contemplating or studying the humanity of Christ, those three verses I just read are almost disturbing. And it may be possible to fall into the error of trying to explain it away through the lens of the deity of Christ. That when verse 8 says that Jesus learned obedience, it simply means he demonstrated obedience. Is that the case? Well, we're helped by verse 7 because it introduces the situation in which he learned obedience. It was in the days of his flesh. It can't be true of Jesus eternally. He wasn't learning in heaven because God is all-knowing. The word here for learn, it means to appropriate for oneself. It means to gain knowledge through instruction, to learn by experience. So there's no way to make this word mean only that he demonstrated obedience. It can't mean that. And by the way, this isn't learning obedience in the sense of decreasing disobedience. Jesus was sinless and was never disobedient to his heavenly father or to his earthly parents. Now, I do have to address this a little bit of a sidebar here Jesus did not, for the first time, begin obeying his heavenly Father upon his arrival on earth. Some would hold that since Jesus is God, he never had to obey his Father because that would make him less than his Father. But Scripture says otherwise. Jesus himself said in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When did he get this command? When he was in heaven. Jesus said in John 8, 42, Jesus, Jesus said to them, if, I, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come of myself, but he sent me. And so the obedience of the Son of God has been true in eternity past, that while being equal in essence to God, he willingly subordinated himself to his Father's will, because this is how he shows love to his Father. But here in Hebrews 5, this is a very specific situation. This is specific to Jesus learning obedience in his humanity. This is obedience brought about by the crucible of suffering, by the fires of trial. Verse 8, again, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Notice the although he was a son part. It means that as the Son of God, He deserved only honor, only glory, only loyalty, only adoration, only worship. And instead, what He primarily got was ridicule, mocking, hatred, and ultimately humiliation, degradation, physical torture, and death. As a matter of fact, it is precisely the fact that Jesus kept on obeying His Father that brought more and more suffering upon Him and ultimately took Him on the path to the cross. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered to death by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay, but learning implies a progression, right? A course of study. You didn't go to 12th grade 12 times. You didn't go to 1st grade 12 times. Well, some of you might have, I don't know. But, but how did Jesus learn obedience? If you track the life and ministry of Christ, you might note that his earlier acts of obedience are somewhat lighter and less intense. Something of a training program to prepare the man, Jesus Christ, for later more intense and painful and sacrificial acts of obedience. We've already seen one of these progressions. Our earlier text in Luke 2, Luke 2.51 says that Jesus continued in subjection to his parents. He obeyed them perfectly and humbly, a sinless boy obeying sinful parents. And what was the biggest thing he had to obey? Do the dishes, take out the trash, 
Be respectful. Those are the things he obeyed. This was training ground for the ministry of Christ as Jesus himself attested in John 17, 4. Speaking to his heavenly Father, I glorified you on earth having finished the work which you have given me to do. Much bigger level of obedience. How about the miracles of Jesus? The spectacular display of his power and authority. Did you ever notice that they seem to start with something of a progression? There are, by many counts, 37 recorded miracles of Jesus. In chronological order, they seem to, at least at the outset, demonstrate the progression of intensity. I wouldn't go to the stake over this issue personally, but it is interesting to notice something. The first miracle was his turning water into wine. No one's life hung in the balance on this. Just some social embarrassment, right? No one was going to die if they didn't have wine. Then he healed an official son. He drove out a single evil spirit from a man in Capernaum. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed many sick and oppressed the same evening. He caused a miraculous catch of fish. He healed a man of leprosy. He healed a centurion's paralyzed servant. He healed a paralyzed man let down through a roof. He healed a man with a withered hand. Those are the first 10 recorded miracles, all of them glorious, all of them wondrous, all of them beyond human comprehension, yet to a certain degree, increasing in glory. Because what was number 11? Jesus raised the son of a widow from the dead when that boy was on his way to his own funeral. That's a serious elevation. After this, he controls the weather. He casts out thousands of demons at a time. He feeds tens of thousands of people miraculously. He walks on water. He cleanses ten lepers at one time. He raises the dead multiple times, including a man dead so long that he would have been decomposing by then. That was Lazarus. In any case, Jesus underwent a progression of spiritual maturation as a man. Verse 9 says, having been made perfect, meaning completion. He completed his training in his human spiritual life. Remember, we read earlier, Philippians 2.8 tells us that Jesus came becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. What does this tell us? The life that he lived prepared him for the death that he died. He learned obedience so that at the ultimate moment of testing, he would have the spiritual strength to finish the work his father had given him. And what was the result? The result in verse 9, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And what stands as the proof of his amazing spiritual life? It is his prayers. His prayers. Verse 7, he prayed with loud crying and tears. This is most obviously referring to his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed. His prayers of, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but you will. There is no way from that that you can draw the conclusion that his obedience was easy. Instead, his obedience was difficult. It was hard won. Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, the man, desperately needed the strength of God to fulfill his Father's will. He even told his disciples in Matthew 26, 38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And he asked his disciples to, to keep watch with him, to pray with him, to pray for him. But I think it's a mistake to assume that this was the first time Jesus prayed to the Father with loud crying and tears. 
This was the culmination of a lifetime of a rich and dependent prayer life. I think we could think of plenty of other times we could at least see the high likelihood of this level of total dependence on his heavenly father. How about during his temptation? Before he was tempted by the devil, he fasted for 40 days and nights. Fasting is highly associated with prayer in the Bible. Matthew 4, 1 says that Jesus was led up into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit in order to be tempted by the devil. Jesus had 40 days of fasting and prayer in preparation for the spiritual battle. How about the night before naming his apostles, the men through whom the gospel would go to the whole world. Luke 6, 12 and 13 records, now it happened that at this time he went off to the mountain to pray and he was spending the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. How about for the strength to do the work of the ministry? Luke 5, 15 and 16, but the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But he himself would often slip away to the desolate regions and pray. Can I put it this way? It's degrading and disrespectful to the humanity of Christ to downplay the struggle and the strengthening he needed to obey God the Father. To say that obedience was a breeze and because of his divine nature. No, obedience to God as a perfect man took effort and it took prayer and prayer and prayer and prayer and prayer. So what does verse 7 teach us about the prayer life of Christ? That's a massive study in and of itself, but let me just make three observations. First of all, he prayed with urgency. He prayed with urgency. The two different words translated prayers and supplications are fairly closely connected and they both have to do with making requests, with asking for things. But the word translated supplications has a wider sense of urgency, immediacy, of need. There's a resolve, there's a necessity to those prayers. There's a nowness to those prayers. Second observation we could make, he prayed with sincerity. He prayed with sincerity. He prayed with loud crying and tears. That's, that's not to say that characterized all of Jesus' prayers, but it characterized some of them. He didn't just go through the motions, putting together a bunch of learned phrases. No, he poured out his heart. He literally cried out his pain. He cried out his need before his heavenly father. He was real. He presented his deepest self. He prayed with urgency. He prayed with sincerity. One more observation. He prayed with humility. He prayed with humility. The text says he was heard because of his reverence. This is a word that means faith. Fear of God, awe of God, caution with God. But in other words, Jesus honored God perfectly and as a man he humbled himself completely under the hand of God his Father. His theology proper was perfect and as such he presented himself in humility as a man before his heavenly Father. He prayed with urgency, sincerity, humility. Let me ask you a question. Could Jesus have gone to the cross at age 12 to die for your sins? Could Jesus have gone to the cross at age 30, at the beginning of his ministry, to die for your sins? Hebrews 5 would indicate no. And this has nothing to do with his deity, his divinity. It has everything to do with his humanity. 
his body physically strengthened, Luke 2.40, and in the same way his spiritual life strengthened to the point that he could withstand the ultimate test of his spiritual stamina. And even when sweating drops of blood could pray, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus the man had a clear and perfect yearning for divine assistance and he demonstrated an other spiritual dependence upon God the Father and certainly upon God the Spirit. Spiritual life of Christ in prayer is so instructive for us. Let me suggest four principles that you could take away from this. First one, every opportunity to obey is an opportunity to pray. Every opportunity to obey is an opportunity to pray. The obedience of Christ described in Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 is tied to his prayer life. You cannot separate sanctification with communication with the Lord. And where did this start? Scripture doesn't tell us this, but if we're going to be consistent in Christ's perfection, it may be that he prayed to his heavenly father as a nine-year-old, Father, help me to obey these sinful people that I'm under. That even as a child, we could surmise that he saw every opportunity to obey as an opportunity to pray. Second principle, there, is no, there are no insignificant moments of obedience. There are no insignificant moments of obedience. All of them are spiritual strengthening opportunities to train you for greater moments of obedience. And I think it's safe to say that if you'll pray through the smaller moments of obedience, the Lord will entrust to you larger moments of obedience with more impact for the kingdom of Christ. It's the third principle. The trials and pains of life are gifts from God for our training. The trials and pains of life are gifts from God for our training. Don't go through your whole life just praying to get through and get done with everything. That's a little bit fatalistic. That's the Christian that when he gets a, a, a terminal diagnosis says, finally, No, we don't want to live that way. God ordains and controls suffering to grant us spiritual strength. And you're probably already thinking this text. James 1, beginning in verse 2, reminds us to consider it all joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about what? Perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Does that sound familiar? He, in the days of his flesh, offered up both prayers and supplications. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered and having been made perfect. By what? By the suffering that he underwent. There's one more principle. The battles of faith are won in prayer. The battles of faith are won in prayer. Jesus, you will know this, did not live a spiritual life by saying, hey, I'm God, I'm going to coast through all this. I'm solid, I'm good. There's never an indication that Jesus used his deity, as it were, to coast through his life. He didn't do that, and neither should you. Spiritual deception and vulnerability to sin happens. Listen carefully. Spiritual deception and vulnerability to sin happens anytime you fool yourself into thinking you can handle anything on your own. Well, I've done this before that you may as well just place a phone call to Satan and say, would you please come mess up my life right now? Do you see why Paul exhorts the Christian to pray without ceasing, to live a life characterized by constant prayer, that your prayers are breathing to the Christian? Let me end where we began. 
Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. I am inspired by the life of Christ the man in the Word of God, and I'm inspired by the life of Christ the man in prayer. And I want to be like Him. And I'm praying that you want to be like Him and how glorious and marvelous it is that we serve and worship a Savior who, as it were, has lived the Christian life. And He did it in perfection. His spiritual life, even when physically separated from His Heavenly Father, was exemplary and worthy of imitation. And I hope that you will take that away from this afternoon. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for our Savior, the perfect man, the perfect example the one who has lived a life that we should aspire to and that by the the help of the Spirit of God, we, we can aspire to that, not to perfection. We're bound up in our sins still in our flesh, but we are able to benefit from the fruit of the Spirit. We are able to demonstrate the filling of the Spirit. We are able to live our lives by the control of the Spirit. And that's what we would ask for, Lord. We would ask to be spirit-filled, spirit-indwelt, spirit-controlled, just like Jesus the man was. We think about the Apostle John who said that we ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. That is a clear statement of following after Jesus the man. May we do so to the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.